Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Let's pray before we open God's word. Father, we just thank you for this, uh, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. We thank you that as we dig into them, we are digging into your story, your story about Christ through both testaments. As we learn about these people who are trusted in you, we're seeing our own family here. And we pray, Lord, that we would um, be blessed by this morning. Um, we pray that we wouldn't just be blessed, but we would glorify you in our lives. We pray you give uh, repentance and conviction where needed. You give hope and comfort where needed. Lord, you can do all these things. We can do nothing. And so we ask you to come in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this series in the Old Testament called Old Testament Family Reunion. And what we're doing is we're going through the Old Testament, not in order, but we're looking for different believers in the Old Testament that, um, that really point us to Christ. And so these are our spiritual ancestors. Sometimes we think that there's a division there between the people in the Old Testament and the New. But the people in the Old Testament and the people in the New Testament saved the same way through Jesus, empowered by God to do uh, things for his glory. And so this morning we're going to look at Rahab. And so if you guys want to turn to Joshua 2, Maybe have a finger in Joshua 6, and maybe another finger in uh, Genesis 15. That's where we're going to be. And I just want to kind of show you the timeline. Since we're not doing these in order, it can be kind of a little bit disjointing to where you're thinking, okay, when was this person? Well, let me give you the background on Rahab. So around 2000 BC, God calls Abraham and Sarah to be his people, and he starts the Jewish uh, the Jewish people from them, God's chosen people. And, um, and they head out. And in Genesis 15, God shows Abraham the land that he was going to give his people Israel, called the promised land, right? The land of Canaan. He shows it to him. But the interesting thing is he doesn't give it to him right away. You know, he's got this whole process he's going to do. If you look at Genesis 15, 13, it says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, talking about when their time in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possession. As for you, you will go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here to this promised land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so God tells him, it tells Abraham that his people, Israel, are going to come back later. Several hundreds of years later, they're going to be in, in slavery. And then he doesn't tell them about the wandering, but the wandering is going to happen. And then and they'll come to this land. And there's an interesting reason for the delay. Did you see it in Genesis 15, 16? The reason for the delay in giving the land is he says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so what we have in the book of Judges is God finally bringing judgment on the people of Canaan, uh, on the Amorites. And the Amorites um, included the people in Jericho and Rahab, right? So these are the Amorites, these are the people that live in the land. And God was delaying and giving the land, the, uh, the promised land to his people, because he was in a process of warning and waiting, okay? He was warning and waiting for the Amorites uh, to repent. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow concerning his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so after centuries of warning and waiting, finally God is judging the Amorites. Because sometimes we get this idea that like he wants to give this land to his people, and then there's these innocent people that just happen to be living there, and he wipes them out. That's not what's happening. God had been dealing with those people for centuries, calling them to repent. And so here we are, 700 years after Abraham, roughly, about 1300 B.C., Moses has led them out of Egypt. They've done their wandering thing. They were disobedient, so God had them do laps, right? God had them do laps for 40 years. 
And then uh, all that older generation died, and then, and then Moses himself dies, and then Joshua is going to lead them into the land. He's going to become the new leader instead of Moses. And it's so fun, in Joshua 1.17, it says that the people, when they put forward uh, that, that, Joseph, that, um, that Joshua is going to be the new leader, the, the people say this, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Isn't that comforting? You know, he's probably like, uh, could you do better, actually? That'd be great. Not exactly comforting. And so like Moses did before, Joshua is, is going in to conquer the land. He sends in the spies. Sounds familiar from 40 years ago, but this went a lot better. The spies go into the land, and look at Joshua 2.1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho said to Rahab, Bring out the men that have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, men did come to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And when the gate was about to be closed, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up onto the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So these, these spies, they're coming in Jericho, they're spying out this military target. Um, the king gets wind of it, probably because uh, Rahab's house is kind of in the wall, it's a very obvious place, um, and he sends the Jericho police, and they investigate, and she lies to him, she hides him, and sends the, king, the king sends his pursuers out on a wild goose chase. But the problem is, in the meantime, they've closed the gates. So you hear all the spies, and they're stuck in Jericho now. It's just as hard to get out as it is to get in. The gates are closed. And so we're left in this tension in verse 7 of how will they escape? And how are these people going to get out of here? And what's interesting is, for the next eight verses, it doesn't answer that question. Because he's got a more, the writer has a more important story to tell. And it's a story of redemption. It's a story of faith and redemption. It's a story about Rahab. And this story about Rahab should concern every one of us because this is actually the story of all humanity. Because just like Rahab, we have been born sinners and we've been born into a city of destruction like Jericho. We're in the same situation as Rahab, actually. Have you guys ever read uh, The Pilgrim's Progress? John Bunyan, 1600s. What's the city called that he leaves? He leaves the city of destruction, right? That's the place that he leaves. That's where he was born. And all of us, likewise, have been born in the city of destruction. Jericho was eventually going to be destroyed, and that promised land was going to be given to another. And just as God finally destroyed that city, God will someday judge this city. And just like he gave Canaan to to his people as a promised land, God will one day make this earth new and give that new land to his people. And we read about that in uh, Psalm 37, verse 9. It says this, for the evildoer shall be cut off, and those who wait, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look for him at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, that last part might sound familiar to you, because Jesus quoted it in the Sermon on the Mount, except he changed it a little bit. He said, the, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Changes that word land, makes it more earth. Um, the promised land actually in the Old Testament is a picture of the world to come. The promised land is a picture of the world to come, of the new earth. And this story about Rahab should concern us because this story tells us how do we flee from the city of destruction and inherit the true promised land. 
And in the book of Hebrews, it says how she did, and it was by her faith. In Hebrews 11.31, it says that by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This morning, we're going to look at that faith. We're going to see four things about that faith. And the four things are she had a faith that fears, she had a faith that seeks, she had a faith that risks, and she had a faith that hopes. So fears, seeks, risks, and hopes. First, fears. Take a look at verse 8 again in Joshua 2. Before the men laid down, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you uh, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Og, and whom you devoted to destruction. And as we heard, as soon as we heard, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Um, according to Rahab, this city of Jericho has, has, has devolved into a culture of terror, a culture of fear. We see that in verse 9. She says, the fear of you has fallen on us. In verse 9, it also says, the inhabitants melt away with fear. They're terrified. Why are they terrified? They're terrified because of verse 10. They heard how the, the Red Sea parted. I mean, news of that kind of stuff travels, right? As the merchants you know, travel around, and Jericho would have been a city that would have had a lot of people passing through. They heard about how the Red Sea had parted. They heard about what they had done to kings that were also Amorites on the other side of the Jordan, these two kings. And so Rahab says in verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man. Jericho became a culture of fear. Which is impressive because they had so much outward security, didn't they? I mean, you can look at archaeologically and, and, and what people say about Jericho, these huge thick walls, you know, probably 30 feet high and, and super thick. They had military, they had wealth, they had all these things, and yet they had become a culture of fear. Our culture, too, is a culture of fear. I don't care if you guys have noticed, and maybe I'm noticing more lately, but just in the last few years, you can see that we become increasingly a culture of fear. See it in the media, see it in our movies. And it's interesting because like Jericho, we have great power and we have great wealth and we have all these things. And yet there's this sense of dread that you hear. And it's very easy to stir up in people again. And we see it in our films. I mean, how many films do we have about the end of the world? You know, how many different ways can the world end? You know, what are some of the ways we see in movies? What? Aliens would be a key one. You got aliens. Asteroid. What was it? Thanos? Yes. Let's, let's not forget Thanos. Environmental hazards, climate change, environmental hazards, nuclear war, robots, zombies. I mean, we have so many movies that are dystopias. It's crazy. I love them. I don't know why. You know, but we have, we have very few utopian movies, right? They're all dystopias, right? They're all, as a culture, we have a sense of impending doom, but we don't know exactly what's going to destroy us. We have this kind of, and even in our private lives, we have this kind of ambient anxiety, you know, this ambient anxiety, this nonspecific fear and foreboding that something bad is just around the corner. We just don't know why. What's interesting about Rahab's fear, though, is hers has become very specific. She has very specific fear about the future, and she isn't just afraid of war, and she isn't just afraid of conquest, and she isn't even just afraid of the Israel army. Who is she afraid of? She's afraid of God. And she's not afraid of God like a general idea of God. She's afraid of Yahweh. Look at verse 9. I know that the Lord, that's all caps, that's Yahweh, God's covenant name, very specific name. It's not like God in general. This is Yahweh. 
I know that Yahweh has given you the land. And it's amazing, guys, that she would see her world as vulnerable because her house is literally in the wall. Her house is built into the wall. She lives in these powerful, massive walls of Jericho. And, and, and you'd think she'd feel secure. I mean, our world can feel secure too. But when the judgment of Yahweh comes, walls don't stand before him, right? He has all power. Rahab knows this. Look at verse 11. L- listen to her confession in verse 11. The Lord your God. So Yahweh your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's amazing, guys. It's amazing that this, this pagan woman in Jericho, this prostitute, that she would have such a confession of faith. You realize this is the exact confession of faith that God wanted for his people. If you look at Deuteronomy 4.39, he, he said this, Know therefore today and lay it on your hearts that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other God. Right? And so here she is, this woman, very little information, that now believes that Yahweh is the true God. It's amazing. And now she's come to fear him, right? And so she fears him in a way that she no longer fears the king. We can see that. She no longer fears her city. She doesn't fear her family. She fears Yahweh. That kind of ambient anxiety, that that kind of general anxiety has been refocused now to be squarely on God, the only God that exists, Yahweh. And that's a gift, guys. That gift to fear in the right spot is a gift. The Proverbs talk about it. Proverbs talk consistently about the fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 10.27 says, The fear of Yahweh prolongs life. Matches her, doesn't it? Proverbs 19.24, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be harmed. Right? The fear of the Lord, guys, is a gift. And what's interesting is Rahab didn't have any more information than everybody else in the city. They were all kind of scared too, right? But they didn't fear Yahweh. It's interesting, right? God had given her a specific gift of faith, and now she fears. Um, you guys remember uh, Amazing Grace, what it says about fear? It says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, right? It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Why does it appear beautiful and wonderful? Because God has first brought us to a place of fearing him. Fear of the Lord, guys, leads us to seek salvation in the Lord. And that's what we see with Rahab. Look at verse uh, 12. She also has a faith that seeks. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and my brothers and sister and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab's fear of the Lord here leads her to seek a solution to be saved. She wants to be saved. She wants to be delivered. And, it's, and it's, that's actually also even more amazing, right? It's amazing that this woman that doesn't have really any connection to the covenant people would have any sense that she could get mercy from him right? This word that for deal kindly here in verse 12, it trans- translates the Hebrew word hased, which is that loving kindness, that special covenant loving kindness of God. You see it throughout the book of Ruth, you know, that God's consistently showing them hased, loving kindness, mercy, kindness. And it's amazing that she would seek this, because it's one thing for Rahab to, to be afraid of the army coming. That's one thing, for her to be afraid of that. It's another thing for her to fear God. It's another thing for her to fear Yahweh specifically. But it's a truly amazing thing that Rahab would sense that maybe there's a way to get mercy from him. How does she know that? It's a gift of God, right? This is supernatural. And I would just say to any of you that are here this morning, if you're seeking God right now, no matter how far you are from him, if you're seeking him right now, I know one thing for sure. He's seeking you. 
Because that's the only way it works, guys. We are so lost, he has to come find us, right? And this seeking that you're seeing on her part isn't just her doing this. This is God himself seeking her. And when he does seek a person, he gives them this little spark of hope that like, maybe there is a way to be saved by God. Rahab's doing that. She's, she's thinking, maybe there is a way to be saved. Maybe, you know, this looks all bad, but maybe there's a way to get mercy from God. Maybe there's a way to get saved from Yahweh by Yahweh, you know? And so, and so she, she says to the Hebrew spies, please, in verse 12, please swear to me by Yahweh and give me a sign. She asked for two things. She asked for a promise of deliverance and a sign, and that's going to become important later. And the spies respond in verse 14, our lives for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And Rahab, it's really cool, she starts to get emboldened to take a risk. And so thirdly, her faith risks. Look at verse 15. Then she let them down with, with a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. So Rahab has this faith that takes risks. And she's taking a shocking risk here. Why? She's letting these spies out of the window of her house, right? And she's in the wall. You can kind of see this visually. If you're on the outside of the city, there's a wall, there's a window. That's her house. They're going to be let down right out of her window. And so if anyone were to look at the wall, which they're certainly going to do, right? <laughs> they're, they're expecting invasion. They're going to look at the wall. They're going to see these spies hanging from it. And all you have to do is look up and go, whose window is that? And you would know exactly who the traitor is. Rahab's taking huge risks here. Rahab's in a place where she has to choose her loyalties, isn't she? she is she going to identify with God's people and risk death? Or will she identify with her people, Jericho, and, and risk destruction. There's no in-between, right? If Rahab turns in these Hebrew spies, she could be a hero for the first time in her life, right? She'd be the hero of the city, right? Loved by her city if she turns in these spies. If she gets caught lowering him, she's a traitor, and she's going to be killed probably, right? I don't think they're going to deal very kindly with her. There's no in-between. Faith in Yahweh always calls us to identify with him and to take a risk, and I think that's been watered down lately. I think we don't think about that in kind of a peaceful culture like we're in. We don't think about the fact that when we identify with Yahweh, we're called to take risks. Um, have you guys ever heard of Pascal's Wager? So Blaise Pascal is one of our people hundreds of years ago. Great guy. Loved the Lord. But he had this thing called Pascal's Wager. You probably didn't call it that, but there was a wager. And I don't believe in it, by the way, just from the beginning. And he said this. He said, you know, either God exists or he doesn't. Okay, that's true. He said, if he exists and you reject him, the consequences are severe, right? If God exists and you reject him, the consequences are severe. That's true. If he exists and, and you believe in him, the rewards are great. That's also true. And then he said, if he doesn't exist and you reject him, you lose nothing, right? So he's putting out a wager, right? If you reject God and he doesn't exist, you don't lose anything, right? That's true too. And then fourthly, he said, if he doesn't exist and you believe in him, you don't lose much. So he says it's safer, right? It's safer to just bet, which faith doesn't work this way, guys. It's not like that. So, um, but he said it's better to bet God exists and believe in him because if you gain, you gain it all, and if you lose, you lose nothing. So he says there's really nothing to lose by believing in God because if he exists, you win, and if he doesn't, you don't lose much. Rahab would disagree, wouldn't she? Wouldn't Rahab disagree with that? Rahab would disagree with that. 
If she sides with Yahweh and he's not the true God, she loses everything for nothing, right? And real faith is like that. It takes risks that if he isn't faithful, you're dead, right? Uh, Paul would disagree with it too, which is a real problem. He said, if in Christ we have to hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, right? Real faith takes risks. Real faith is such that we put our lives in his hands in such a way that if it's not true, we lose hugely, okay? Um, If you're living a Christian life that loses nothing if it's not true, you're not living a truly Christian life, right? If you're living a Christian life that loses nothing if it's not true, if it's untrue, then you're not really living a Christian life at all. Rahab's life shows that true saving faith in Yahweh always risks loss, always costs. So I'd ask you this, what are you risking by identifying with Christ? I think that's important for us to think through in a culture that's not out to kill us. What are you risking to identify with Christ? Do you risk friendships? Have you risked, you know, good relationships with your neighbors? Um, have you, you know, risked clients or status with coworkers or just public approval in general? Have you risked your finances? I mean, if God is who he said he is and he's promised what he said he promised and he's got this great mission that we can be a part of, like, we would invest in that. And if it turns out to all not be true, we, there should be huge losses, right? Because we believed in it. Where are you playing it safe? And I'm not talking about being obnoxious, and I feel like I have to bring that up because we kind of go between two extremes. We'll either be silent or obnoxious. There's something in between. We could be humbly identify with God and be gracious to people, but make clear that we're Christians, right? Um, It's important to realize, guys, when you look in Ephesians 6 and you look at the armor of God, it doesn't include camouflage, okay? The armor of God does not include camouflage. We are called to identify with him. So why would Rahab take this kind of risk? Two things. She knows her city's passing away, and so do we, right? And she knows that Yahweh is going to save her to something better. So fourth, she has a faith that hopes. Look at verse 17. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you, that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you have let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's house. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We will be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is, who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on his head, own head. But if you tell of our business, then we shall be guiltless with respect to the oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Rahab's faith was a faith that hopes. What did she hope in? You know, remember in verse 12, she asked them for two things. She wanted a promise of deliverance, and she wanted a sign, right? She wanted a promise that she would be, receive said, that she would be saved, that she would be delivered, and she wanted, she said, a sure sign. What sign did the Hebrew spies give Rahab? They gave her a sign. What was it? It was a red cord. It was that scarlet red cord to hang out that window. Now, why would these Hebrew spies pick a scarlet or a red cord as the symbol of salvation? Yes, was there something in their recent past that sounds a lot like something red being put on your house to save you from destruction, right? Here, they had a woman in this city that was doomed to destruction, and this woman's asking, how can I be saved from Yahweh by Yahweh? What sign will you give me to hope in, right? And they would have remembered. They would have remembered that their people, too, the Jews, had lived in a city that was doomed to destruction, 
right? 40 years earlier, not a long time ago, their people were slaves in Egypt. And one day, God sent a rescuer. His name was Moses. And he commanded Pharaoh to let the people go. They wouldn't. So God brought all these plagues on them. Remember that? Brought all these plagues on them to let them go. They turned the, the, the Nile into blood and brought frogs and gnats and flies and dead livestock and boils and hail and locusts and darkness, okay? All kinds of things, right? And then that final plague, that the worst plague, was the plague of the death of the firstborn. Every firstborn male child would be killed that night. Now, the Israelites, guys, deserved judgment just as much as the Egyptians, didn't they? Didn't they? I mean, they didn't, they didn't have any particular faith or righteousness at that point. They, they deserved it just as much. But God gave them a way to receive protection for themselves and their families from the plague of death. There was a way to be saved by Yahweh from Yahweh. Look at Exodus 12, 21. It says this, Then Moses called all the elders of of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clan and kill the Passover lamb. And take a bunch of hyssop, which is kind of a plant that uses kind of a paintbrush. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch it to the lentil and the doorposts of Uh, with the blood that is in the basin. So they're to paint this blood around their doorposts. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning, for the Lord will will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on your doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you dead. So those who place this blood of the Passover lamb on their houses and they stayed inside under that covering would be spared from judgment. They would, they would be passed over. That's what they call Passover lamb. They would be passed over for judgment. No matter how bad they, badly they had sinned against the Lord, if they just were under that covering of blood, they'd be safe. And now you can see why the spies would give her this sign, right? She wants a sign of deliverance. How to be saved from Yahweh, by Yahweh. And she, you can see now, hear the echo here in, in Joshua 2.18. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in your window through which you have let us down. And then listen to this. You shall gather into your house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And then if anyone goes out of the doors, you see the echo? There's a total echo of what happened here. Um, Rahab, he's saying, Rahab, here is the sign of blood covering. This is how you'll be saved. Put this on your house, gather everybody who wants to be saved in that house, and you'll be passed over for judgment. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that cool that they gave her such a beautiful sign? And and Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Christ is our Passover lamb that has been sacrificed, right? And that if you hide yourself in him, under the covering of his blood, by faith in him, then he will pass over you for judgment and you will inherit the true promised land. And so we live in this time, right, where we're inviting people to come into the house, right? We're inviting people to come. They have sin. All of us are sinners. And we need to be rescued from judgment. And we're calling people to come and take refuge under the blood of Christ, like Rahab did, like his family did, like we have. And I love how these Israelite spies, when she asks, like, how can I be delivered? They go, well, this is what God did for us. Isn't that what we do when we share Christ? Is we say, well, this is what God did for us. I trusted in Christ, and this is what happened. I'm a sinner like you. Come on inside, right? And in this, we can see that the gospel is both exclusive and inclusive, right? It's exclusive because it's only under the blood of Jesus that you can be saved. That's exclusive. There's only one way. Jesus is the only way. But it's inclusive in that anyone can come into the house, right? And everybody's invited to come into the house. Have you come in and taken refuge under the blood of Jesus? Because this destruction thing is sure, okay? This is solid. This is going to happen. And this way of rescue is solid. This is going to work. 
okay? It's worked before, and it's going to work for the final judgment. And it doesn't matter how badly you've sinned against God, you can come inside. Do you guys realize that that day, the blood of Jesus covered a brothel? Okay? The blood of Jesus covered a brothel full of sinners. There's room for you, too. There's room for your sin in there, too. He will cover it. And so what happened? Rahab was saved. Look at Joshua 6, 25. Because this is after, so they go around the city, the walls come down, they go in, they conquer, there's this big battle. And then in Joshua 6, 25, it says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. When the walls of Jericho came down, her, her house was left standing. Can you guys imagine what that would have been like? To be kind of like hunkered down, you're like, okay, told us, those guys we just met, they told us to hang this thing out, we're just going to kind of get in here, and there's this rumbling in, of, the, of the walls all around you, and you're part of the wall, so it's like, this is going to be tons of rumbling, noise and dust and sounds of screaming and sounds of death and war, and then it all goes silent, right? And then those dudes come back and they knock on your door and they say, come on out, you're safe, you're good. And Rahab would have emerged with her family, and she would have seen this kind of crazy. I was looking for a picture of it or something. This, like, little sliver of the wall that's left with her house on it, you know? That God had spared her house. She was saved. She was saved alive. Her and her whole family took refuge under the red cord and were alive. They were the only survivors of the city. And we could stop there. You could stop there, because that's great, you know? But there's actually a little bit more to the story. There's a little bit more of the story of God's love for Rahab, this prostitute. And it's really beautiful. Rahab doesn't just get to live. She's given a life. I love that about this story. It, you know, what do they do from here? It isn't like, okay, Rahab, go on your way. We got things to do. You know, go, go find, a, find a home. You know, you'll be fine. Right? What more do you want from us? <laughs> right? That isn't what happens, right? Rahab was saved by Yahweh, from Yahweh, to Yahweh, and to his people. So cool how she got included. Take a look at verse 25 again, the second half. And she, lived in, and she has lived in Israel, Rahab. She has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the spies whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. This is so cool because Rahab becomes a full-valued member of God's family. Rahab, it, it shows us, guys, that our past, in Christ, our past does not have to determine our future. There's a lot of times we have this sense that, like, you've sinned too much, you've sinned too greatly, you, you're, you're damaged, you know? You're damaged goods. She could feel that way. she feel like, I'm damaged goods. Who's going to want me? You know, I, I, at least I'm not, you know, going to be destroyed, but what kind of life can I have? Rahab shows us that in Christ, our past doesn't have to determine our future. God gave her not just allowed her to live, but gave her a life. Rahab's not a second-class citizen, right? She becomes a true heir of all the promises of Israel. In the very beginning of the story, they kind of put her outside the camp, and they're trying to figure out what to do with her. She didn't stay out there, though. She was brought in, and she was included. If you want to see what full inclusion looks like, look at Matthew 1.5. This is so cool. Matthew 1.5. You take a look at it. It says this guy, Salmon, I assume his name's not Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Talk about full inclusion. She's not a second-class citizen. She's not somebody that's kind of kept off to the side. God saw fit to put, make her a mother in the royal line of King David. Isn't that amazing? I love the fact that a man named Salmon chose this woman, this woman who had been trapped in sin and used by the men of, of Jericho and all that, I love that he chose her to be his wife. 
Isn't that cool? Don't you just love it when our people do the right thing? I love it. I'm like, go team. That's great. You know, like, let's keep doing that kind of thing. Like, let's stop doing what we've been doing and do that kind of thing. I just love hearing that. This guy is such a wonderful person. You might wonder, you know, after all she'd been through, you might have wondered, like, who would choose Rahab? Like, certainly she can live in the community or whatever, but who would choose her? Yahweh chose her. Yahweh chose this woman who was a prostitute. In fact, when he scanned the whole city of Jericho, his affections landed on a prostitute in Jericho. Isn't that amazing? It's so beautiful. He's so different than us. It was Rahab that he gave saving faith to. It was Rahab that he decided to make a part of his bride. I'll take Rahab. And then what's really cool is this Salmon guy is reflecting the love of the gospel, right? And he chooses Rahab to be his wife. I just love that guy. And then Rahab becomes a mother in the line of King David. But not only King David, who else? Yeah, that's whose genealogy that is, right? Matthew 1. Rahab becomes a mother in the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And not just a mother in the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, a highlighted one. That genealogy isn't everybody. It's all the people that Matthew wanted to mention in this long list of people. And who does he highlight? He highlights Rahab, Tamar, Bathsheba, right? God was happy to marry Rahab into the royal line of the Messiah. So good. It's so good. Do you guys see how close Jesus wants to be to sinners? He doesn't want to save you and keep you at an arm's distance. He wants to be close. (laughs) We can see that he wants to be close to sinners because he chose to be born through them. You know, and and it's like he picked the most notorious ones he could find. Isn't that awesome? This is the heart of God for you guys. If you take refuge in Jesus, no matter what you've done in the past, Hebrews 2 says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And apparently he's not ashamed to call us fathers and mothers either. Isn't that amazing? This is one of his great, 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 great grandmothers was Rahab. Don't let anything you've done in the past, guys, keep you from pushing forward to grab hold of this Savior. This is the Savior who chose Rahab. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of grace, and um, we are all Rahab. We are all people who have both sinned and been sinned against. There's a cycle of that in our culture. We've all sinned. We all live in the city of destruction. Judgment is sure, and yet we've received a promise and a sign that you will save us from you for you. We just thank you for that. We thank you for highlighting Rahab here, that you would inspire the writer of Joshua to take a little time and just focus on this one person so that we could see what your heart is towards sinners. And Lord, may that embolden us. Whatever we carried here this morning as we move forward to communion, if we're trusting in, in your son, that, that we wouldn't let anything we've done this week keep us from partaking in communion, but we would now... Have this be a time when we would see your love, we'd turn from that sin, we'd drop it, and we'd take hold of the cup and the bread with joy, knowing that you cover sin. You cover it, all of it. There's no sin in this room that's stronger than the blood of Jesus, just like there was no sin in that brothel that day that was stronger than the blood covering you gave. Lord, and we thank you so much that you don't just give us asylum, you give us adoption. You want us as beloved sons and daughters. You want to be close with us. It's amazing. We pray, Lord, that we, our hearts would soften to move closer to you. You haven't gone anywhere, but we drift. We pray our hearts would be made soft and, and come back to you in repentance and faith and joy 
and that we would receive the comfort and the joy of our salvation again, being close to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.